dear chief, much has happened since we last spoke. Welcome to Dear Chief Podcast, where your hosts and their guests share the 411 of being married to the people who respond to 911s. Take a peek into fire family life and get unabashed advice on how to prevent forest fires in your marriage. Now, here's your hosts, two seasoned firewives, Audra and Chelsea. Hey, friends, we're back at it. Hope you all are well. We've got some great guests with us today. The How Clinic is in Encinitas, California, and helps PTSD sufferers with a procedure that disrupts the fight or flight response, essentially resetting the person who lives in a chronic fight or flight state. The best part about it is the person doesn't have to talk about what they've been through with the clinicians, so there is no bringing up things that may be triggers. Dr. How and registered nurse Anne Quinn Both work in emergency medicine as well, and their hearts are for those who work in the field who suffer from post-traumatic stress. So today we're going to talk more about post-traumatic stress in first responders and their spouses or significant others. With that, Dr. Howe and Dr. Quinn, we'd love for you to tell us more about you and your practice. Yeah, great. Um, so this is this is John Howe. I we founded a clinic about a year and a half ago. I'm an ER doc by training, um, but um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is interesting about medicine that doesn't have anything to do with the ER. And I, I founded this clinic to explore that or those things, I should say. Um, my community is, you know, ER docs and nurses and then first responders that, that come in and, and drop off patients and interact with us. And there's a lot of, um, I mean, it's a tough job. All of those jobs are tough jobs for different reasons and it can wear on a person and it can affect your life in a lot of ways. And I, you know, that's, I think what a lot of this podcast is about in in general, you know, with your other episodes too. So I'm really excited to be able to talk with you guys about, about that and about what we can do to to help people um, that are, that are dealing with the, the after effects and the continued effects of working in, in challenging environments and um, what we can do to help each other and stay sane and, and keep being able to do the job that, that we love in a lot of, in a lot of ways. So. For me, I think um, just being a nurse and working in the ER for 16 years, I know for myself, like I'm a helper. And so to be a helpy and to ask for help when, when I went through my bout of PTS, um, was probably the hardest thing that I've ever done. And so to just bring light to the fact that just because you're a nurse, just because you're a doctor, just because you're, um, in the medical field as a firefighter, as a paramedic, as an EMT, it doesn't mean that you can't ask for help too. Um, and so just bringing light to that as well. And just letting, letting everyone know that, you know, it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. That, uh, that job is hard. And so um, that's kind of where my heart's at. And do you mind telling us a little bit about what your PTS, how that started and what made you kind of gravitate toward um, helping first responders specifically? So I've always been a very strong person. Um, I've worked in the ER since I was 
20 years old and I couldn't handle it. There was very little that would get to me. Um, but as the years went on, I would find that I would hold everything in. And so it would bother me to see like a, a baby die, like SIDS or something like that. And what bothered me was that I wasn't as upset as I thought I should be. Um, and then like something really small would come into the ER and I would either relate to it or whatnot. And it would like crack me. And then I'd be a complete mess for like two weeks, just crying over everything. And so in going through my journey and learning, um, about myself and about having to kind of let, let my emotions through, um, I actually feel like I became a lot more emotionally healthy. Like it's okay. Like there's the stigma. I don't know like how it is with fire or whatnot, but for nurses, like there's this stigma to be the strong one. And so if somebody dies and the family's left there and they're a complete mess, like it's my job to go in and be the comforter. Whereas I'm the one in there doing CPR and pushing meds and, you know, trying to save this person. And so coming to the conclusion that, you know, it's okay to cry with family. It's okay to go home and be a mess. It's okay to not be okay. Um, was huge for me. And once I discovered that in myself, I, I also teach nursing students and I try to bring it to light to them before they get to that point of having to learn it themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, it's funny when you say it's it, very similar, I think, in first responders, um, at least in my first responder, you have the inclination to help everyone and be the strong one and pretend like nothing bothers you until something small or maybe something big completely just crumbles you and you don't know why or you don't know you know what it is so that's I mean that's why that's why we're here and to try to help as many people as we can and try to help families understand um I know in the past year I imagine COVID has been quite the ordeal we I have a lot of friends who are nurses um, my husband has a lot of friends who are in the ER and obviously in the field and I know burnout is a huge issue right now. How are you guys, or what are you guys seeing out there as far as burnout and, you know, just the, the trauma that everybody's kind of been experiencing over, over the last, God, 20 months now, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> when you're in it, you don't really see it. So I know I, I left the ER. I'm not an, I don't work in the ER anymore. I do this full time now, but I have a lot of friends that are still in the ER. And what I'm seeing is we got through COVID together. The first wave, I guess it ended probably in February. And now I'm seeing more and more people start to say that they actually have post-traumatic stress because they're seeing it again and they don't want to go through it again. Um, and along with that, I mean, I feel like we were in it and, you know, when you're, when you, when something traumatic is happening and you're, 
your face is right in it. You don't have the ability to back up and see the big picture and how it's affecting you because you're just doing it, especially as someone that works in the ER. I mean, it's just constant go, 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 go. And you just make it work and you, you get through it together. Um, but in doing that all day, every day for an extended period of time, you do get that burnout. you get compassion fatigue, which is actually a symptom of post-traumatic stress. Oh, I for sure have compassion fatigue right now. <laughs> I don't know. What about you, Chelsea? I feel like uh, I have no compassion left. And I, yeah, it's uh, it's just special out there. I think like just to kind of dovetail in with what Ann was talking about, there's an inherent, like if you're in this job, you're, you're, a, you're a helper. You know, you're somebody that if you read like the applications to med school and nursing and, you know, the same, you know, first responder, it's like, the reason I want to do this is because I want to help. And this is the, these are the babies that are coming into our, our profession. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so when you go into a position where you're trying to help people and that's your, you know, you there is an altruism um, there to start with. And then you were put into a position where um, maybe initially the way that this, the tools that you were given to, to do your job, whether it's emotional or physical or whatever it is, you know, do you have enough stuff? Do you have enough staff? Do you have the emotional bandwidth to handle what you're dealing with? Um, and you start out and usually you do. Um, you know, I was, I've been in the ER for 14 years and um, the ER and, you know, I, I can just speak for the ER and I'm sure there's some, there's many parallels in, in the first responder community, but we are really good at making do with what we got. We, we do amazing things with nothing. And um, you, that's a point of pride. You know, we can, we can do anything basically. Um, but then things start, the, the fabric starts fraying when you lose backup or infrastructure or you get overwhelmed. And when you're in an overwhelmed state for 20 months, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it takes a stressful situation that you have and you have, you have things to fall back on. You know, there's a, the, the next shift is coming in. We've got enough supplies. We've got enough people to handle the influx. And, you know, for me as an ER doc, I see 25 patients in ambulance offload line. That's a little stressful, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm sure on the other side, the guys that are taking care of the patients they don't want to be sitting on the wall waiting to drop off, but there's nowhere to go and nothing for, you know, nowhere to put the patient. So you're just, you're putting, you're taking people that are, are caring and trying to do right by the patient and putting them in a less than optimal situation every day. And knowing that you got to go back into that less than optimal situation every day, when you go back to work, it, it puts an extra layer of, of stress on top of what you're already dealing with you know, in, in a non-pandemic situation. So yeah, this is, this is a big deal um, for the, for our community. But then the other part of it is you look at the patients and every, you know, I have a, I have a friend who's a dentist and he had to close down during the early part of COVID. And when he opened up again, he said he was extracting teeth because people were so stressed out that they broke their teeth. And this is not, this is just general population. So the population, the patients are under stress, 
the first responders, then the medical system is under stress. And everyone kind of comes at each other at a heightened level of stress, which then can snowball, you know? So that's, that's sort of the backdrop to what we do when we walk into work. Um, so yeah, it's gotten harder with the pandemic, definitely. That's so funny what you mentioned about the dentist. I had to get a, um, a night guard six months ago because I was grinding my teeth and I didn't yeah. even realize it. And then talking to a few friends, yeah. they also got night guards because they had been grinding their teeth so bad. Um, yeah. it's, he it's, says he, he sold like a thousand percent more night guards when he opened up than he had ever had before. Yeah. It's so crazy. And it was one of those things where I didn't even, I didn't know I was doing it. And yeah. until I went into the dentist and he's like, <laughs> dude, you have so much tension in your jaw. Let me look at your teeth. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> but it was, it's really weird. The, the amount of stress I think people are carrying that don't even realize yeah. they're right. carrying. Yeah. It's frightening. Um, well, Right. Like I said, like when, when you're in it, mm -hmm. you don't see it until you remove yourself from the stressful situation. And you can kind of see like an overview of everything that you've been through. And you're like, wow, that's actually a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's not okay. You know? And so for me, like daily, I have to remind myself that one, there are things that are out of my control. Like there are things that I can't control. Like, especially when I worked in the ER, like I would find myself getting so angry or so upset just at the logistics of things. And I was like, you know what? I can't control this. What can I control? My attitude towards my patients, my coworkers, and just doing my job. But it's hard to stay in that mindset all the time. Yeah, it, it is. And even just as a civilian, me, it's, mm -hmm. it's hard to stay in that mindset when you have kids, you have all these other things, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's been interesting, not, you know, to say the least, we didn't have PTSD before. Now we, everyone has PTSD, but the good news is you guys are doing some amazing work um, to reset people, right? Right. It's Talk funny to us. That, oh, go ahead, Anne. I was just going to say, it's funny that you say that everyone has PTSD because we're actually working on a movement to remove the D, to remove the disorder, because it's not a disorder. It's an injury. It's an injury. Yep. Exactly. Mm -hmm. it, and it is the body's yep. physiologic response to emotional or physical trauma. Yep. And so every single person on this earth has it in them to have this type of injury. And I think getting rid of the word disorder can help really decrease that stigma that, oh, something's wrong with them because they have PTSD. Yep. Yeah, exactly. An injury is completely different. There is still PTSD, but the majority of the people just have PTSI, right? Well, we don't even, like, even if you've had it forever, Mm -hmm. And you've got a traditional diagnosis of PTSD. Because if you look in the, whatever, the DSM-5 or six, you know, the, 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 the psych books, like where do you, what's the actual diagnosis? The D is on the end of it. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's, there's a challenge that we're facing in that 
people don't recognize that they have a problem or they think they have a problem or they know they have a problem, but they don't know what it is. So if I didn't, there's a common thing. If I didn't go to war and have something terrible happen to me, then this thing that everyone knows that the military has to deal with probably doesn't apply to me. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of it, like the, the PTSD or PTSI or post-traumatic stress or whatever you want to call it. it at the end of the day, it's, it's a list of symptoms that not everybody gets all of them. But if you can look at yourself or talk to your mental health provider or somebody and just say, you know, I'm feeling agitated or irritable or hostile, or I have social isolation or self-destructive behavior or flashbacks, anxiety. I mean, there's so many things that so many different ways that this can manifest. And in women, it can manifest as headaches, migraines, dizziness, fatigue, chest pain, stomach aches. I mean, it, it, it manifests differently in women as well. Um, if I'm you sorry. Can... I feel called out right now. <laughs> I'm like, I have uh, migraines. I have uh, heart palpitations. I, yeah. Okay. Well, we won't, yeah. we won't self-diagnose right now, but that's fine. <laughs> at the end of the day, like if you don't look at yourself in with the, everyone's thinking, you know, this something's not right. And sure it's the pandemic or it's this, that, or the other thing, but like, is there something that we can do to fix what, the way that we're feeling? And the first step is realizing, well, what, what are we really dealing with? What, we, what is this response that I'm feeling? You know, this is, this is not okay. We know that. All right. What do we do about it? And if you get the diagnosis, let, let's say in an ideal world, someone has these symptoms, they go to their provider, they say you have this condition and then what, you know, the, the traditional treatments for this aren't great as far as, you know, efficacy or adherence, you know, it's, there's cognitive processing therapy, there's prolonged exposure therapy, there's EMDR, there's medications. These are the classic ways that it's treated, but nobody wants to take pills forever. And honestly, the pills don't, they're not great. They just kind of blunt you. So you're not high, you know, you don't get happy and you don't get sad. You're just kind of in the middle and then they have sexual side effects and this, and it takes six months to come on. You know, it's like, a, there's a lot of downsides to the traditional care for this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we can, I'm not telling people to self-diagnose, but I'm just saying like, think about what you're feeling and or dealing with. Um, and if that, if those symptoms seem to line up with, what this condition is, then that's something to talk to your healthcare provider about and and see if you might be somebody that's dealing with it. You know, that if you're not just because you didn't go to war, doesn't mean that you're not at risk for it. And that's the other thing I wanted to kind of get out there, you know, mental, or I'm sorry, healthcare providers and first responders. There's a lot of reasons why, why we're at risk for this you know, and, um, I can talk more about that, but that's just a, it's not an uncommon thing where people think I'm not, my trauma wasn't bad enough to make me qualify for this, you know, and that's a, that's a sad place to be if it actually is the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So talk to us about the SGB still, still it ganglion block. What is it? And 
Yeah. So um, the stellate ganglion is a, a ganglion is just a group of nerves. And um, there are ganglia that run um, on both sides of your spine and the front of your spine. And the, the strength, those, all those ganglia strung together um, are what are called the sympathetic chain. And the, the sympathetic chain is so named because it's um, responsible for the, the sympathetic nervous system. So the fight, the fight, flight, or freeze response um, and your instinctive response to danger. So you put your hand out, you touch a candle. This is part of that as well. You withdraw your hand without even thinking about it. So it functions at a, you know, subconscious level, but definitely can affect the conscious level. Um, this chain communicates with the amygdala, which is part of the brain. And there are two sides to the amygdala as well. Um, the procedure itself is using numbing medicine, much like you would get when you go to the dentist or if you go have surgery and they, they numb up a part of your body. Um, if you put the medicine next to a sensory nerve, you lose sensation. But if you put the medicine next to a sympathetic nerve, it stops the communication between the sympathetic chain and the amygdala for the amount of time that the medicine is taking effect. Um, we use a, a long acting local anesthetic that lasts for between six and eight hours. Um, the procedure itself is something that's done using an ultrasound. Um, so we can see, you know, the target where we're trying to go, and then we can watch the, the needle move to the area where we want it to be and actually can watch the medicine go in and, and make sure in real time that the injection is going where it's supposed to go. Um, the, um, the effect is that you, you turn off essentially half of your sympathetic nervous system. Um, cause you have two sides obviously. And for, for reasons that we, we have some idea why it worked, but there is why it works, but there is some, you know, some of it is just, we're glad that it works and we're not entirely sure what the whole story is, but that interruption of the communication for for the six hours or so causes a reset in a person's emotional set point. So if you have, if you're exposed to trauma and, and or stress for long periods of time or, or time or a single event at one time, your, the response that you have to a, an input can, can be abnormal. Meaning if I, if my son leaves his socks on the ground and he's supposed to have put them away, that's really like a level two problem. But I come home and I see it and I come back with a level eight or nine response. That's not appropriate. Um, and the, the procedure makes it so that more often than not, and it's not a perfect thing, but more often than not, a level two input gets a level two output as far as a, an emotional response to what's been going on. Okay. That is amazing. So where did this come from? I've never heard of it. So. Yeah. Um, this is a procedure that's been done for almost a hundred years for other things. Um, the, it's a, um, it's used to treat a condition called complex regional pain syndrome. And um, they initially, the doctors were doing it by just, you know, using, palpation. So they would feel uh, for a specific point on the neck 
and then um, put the needle in there and um, inject the medicine. Um, further, further safety came about when we started having x-rays available. And so uh, fluoroscopy, which is a, a type of x-ray technology that allows real-time uh, viewing of, of you know, whatever we're looking at, that makes it so you can see the bones and the needle. So that kind of made it so that it was safer to do. Um, and now the, the ultrasound technology is the gold standard as far as the safest way to do this. Um, and it's still treated, you still use to treat, you know, complex renal pain syndrome. Um, but back in 2005, uh, because of some other related research, um, a physician tried to do, tried this to treat post-traumatic stress injury and um, had a, had a great result. So he published in 2008. And since then, the research around using this procedure specifically for symptoms of post-traumatic stress has become much more robust um, through different physicians um, that are looking at this. And, um, and now it's a it's not as widely known as I would like, you know, the more people that know about this, the better, but it's a, it's a, it's a commonly done thing uh, across the country um, in centers that are, are doing this, you know, for this specific indication. And does it have to be, is it a one-time thing or is it? It depends. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's, it's kind of a, I usually tell people if your trauma happened when you were, younger or prior in your life, and you're now in a safe situation, um, then this likely will, you know, has a higher chance of being curative. Um, if your job is your trauma, then you might need another one because this doesn't inoculate you against, you know, future uh, trauma. That's fascinating. Um, and so you partner with uh, another clinic as well that's working on, is it psychedelic assisted therapy? Right. So the, um, there's no psychedelic medications are, are legal nationwide right now, mm -hmm. but there is a medication called ketamine that is not technically a psychedelic, but has psychedelic like properties. Um, and this is a medicine that's been used, um, for a while to treat depression. And the, the way it works is patients come in for either an intravenous infusion or an injection into the muscle. Um, recently, the FDA approved an intranasal um, form of ketamine as well. And, um, you know, there, there has been varied success with that. And usually it takes six treatments in order to, to have to, like a, a complete treatment course is six treatments. And then it requires um, booster shots, if you will, uh, with some frequency and the frequency depends on the specific patient and how they're feeling. Um, the, the thing that, um, seems to get better results is, uh, to give the medication in a setting where you can talk to a mental health professional while you're receiving it. Um, and that's what we're involved in now, uh, where we'll give ketamine infusions and then, um, a psychologist or a, a licensed therapist is in the room as well and is talking about basically doing a therapy session. Um, there is, um, some good data out there and 
there are legal hurdles being crossed now to allow for psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in uh, magic mushrooms, uh, and then also MDMA, which is a um, some people know as a party drug, but it's um, it's those two are true psychedelics, and to use those in conjunction with psychotherapy shows some very promising results. We're getting good results with ketamine, but you know, the, the other, the other two, I think will, will change the game significantly once they, they come online. So what you're saying is Gwyneth Paltrow was right. (laughs) (laughs) And I hate to admit it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys have a bunch of, well, I shouldn't say a bunch. You have, you partner with a bunch of clinics all over the state, correct? So for the, for the stellate ganglion block, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I see patients in my clinic here, but I also am a um, provider in a network called Stella center. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have providers that are um, in, in a number of different states. We actually just opened uh, or in Australia as well. So it looks like we're you know going to have international expansion of this network. Um, and it's, it's, it's neat to be part of, you know, something like that, where this can be brought to a larger audience. Um, and then also we can leverage the the data collection that we get from having a network to help improve the treatment and, you know, make people get better on a, on a larger scale as well. Yeah. So this is fascinating. I just pulled up the website just because I wanted to see the stellacenter.com and there's actually a, like the very first page. You can take a PTSD quiz Um and it tells you kind of all about the SGB. So that's, that's really cool. And it, yeah, it looks like nationwide. Um, that's fascinating. That's really amazing. Um, wow. That PTSD quiz is kind of, kind of interesting to take. It's so there's a, it's a form that has been developed actually by the VA. Um, it's called the, the PCL five or the, PTSD checklist five, and mm-hmm. it asks people, there's 20 questions and ask, ask you to rate your response to those questions. And then you get a, you get a score. And um, the score is interesting in a lot of ways, just for people to know um, when they were doing research on this procedure, the, the cutoff for study for peach people, I'm sorry, for patients that were led into the study was 35. Um, you know, if you get a PCL five score of 35, then you're a candidate. Um, so a lot of people will score higher than that. And just cause you're below that, if you have the symptoms, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have it. It's just, that's, you know, a point of reference, if you will. All of that was very intriguing and interesting. And we're so happy that there are people like you in the world doing this kind of research and helping our first responders with their injuries. Um, It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So I think with that, unless there's anything else you would like to talk about today, we're going to close it out. No, I think, I think we got the main you know, we hit the main points. I'm, I'm excited to, you know, to get the, get the word out there and hopefully we can help some, some people, especially in our, in our shared community. That'd be great. Yeah. So thank you so much for talking with us today. 
for our listeners. If you want to learn more about the doctors and the incredible work that they are doing at the Howe Clinic, you can visit johnhowmd.com or follow their Insta at the Howe Clinic. And and you have a Instagram too, right? I do. My um, nurse Instagram is at Ann underscore the underscore nurse. Awesome. So you can follow um, the Howe Clinic or Ann the nurse and learn all about all of the awesome things you guys are doing. Um, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I am now going to go do a deep dive into um, the Stella Center <laughs> and learn more about this this is pretty awesome. cool. Um, yeah. So thank you so much. And if anybody wants to get a hold of you, they can just reach out to you uh, through your Instagram or is there any better? That's way? fine. Or on the, on the website, there's, um, there's ways to request appointments. Perfect. Cool. We also have that same, uh, the same PTSD checklist on our website as well. If, if people want to go there. Oh, on the, on John Howe MD. Yeah, correct. Oh, your patient, awesome. There's a checklist there that, that people can fill out. So perfect. Well, everybody go fill that out and see if you um, need some extra help. Reach out to Dr. John or, or Nurse Ann. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you guys for Thank having us. Thanks so much for tuning in. Find us on social media at Dear Chiefs Podcast and online at DearChiefs.com. Tune in weekly for the 25,000-foot view of loving a first responder. Audra and Chelsea, over and out. (laughs) 